0: During the big battle on October 3rd and 4th, 1993, I was pretty convinced, not not pretty, I was absolutely certain that I was going to die. And most of that entire 18-hour firefight, I was absolutely certain that I was going to die. But I believe a lot of people are just blindly going through the, I did the thing that the preacher asked me to do a long time ago, so I hope I'm good. And hoping I'm good is not, enough to bet eternity on man i tell people you gotta know you're on your way to heaven
1: welcome to the no more zero days podcast i'm your host eric savage before we introduce our guests i want to point out that today's episode would not be possible it wasn't for my good friend tom with eagles and angels limited This conversation was actually recorded in the fall of 2019 as a part of an Eagles and Angels project I was putting together that we pulled bits and pieces from, but ultimately I felt that the entirety of this conversation could be extremely uplifting during these tough times we're all facing during COVID-19. Today's guest is retired Army Major Jeff Strucker. He is a former U.S. Army Ranger who took part in the 1993 Battle of Mogadishu, made famous by the movie you've probably heard of Black Hawk Down. He also took part in the invasion of Panama in 1989 and served in Kuwait during Operation Desert Storm. Jeff is currently an author and pastor of a church in Georgia. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged as our conversation covers everything from spiritual warfare, issues facing the church today, how to know where you're going when you die, and of course some amazing stories from the real-life battlefield through his amazing career in the Army Rangers. So let's get into today's episode. So one of the quotes I saw, I think it might have actually been from your book, but I was reading from your online last night and said, quote, the difference between being a coward and a hero is not whether you're scared, it's what you do while you're scared. Can you explain to me a little bit about what you meant by that or just your opinion on that?
0: I've made this quote a lot when I'm speaking to audiences about the difference between a hero and a coward. And I think some people are confused and they think that a hero is somebody who doesn't experience fear. And I've tried to correct this mistake and basically say, without fear, there is no real courage. So the real difference between a hero and a coward is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of courage and courage you only find in the middle of really scary situations. I'm telling you this because I want the really Strong guy out there to think, well, maybe there's nothing wrong with me for being afraid right now. Maybe it's absolutely natural for me to be afraid. The question is what you do when you are afraid that really distinguishes the hero from the coward.
1: What are some of the similarities between militaristic warfare and spiritual warfare? And what can be learned in one and applied in the other?
0: Yeah, there's definitely some connections between spiritual warfare and combat, physical combat on the battlefield. But then there's some, se- some differences as well. One of the uh, connections, one of the similarities is there's a real enemy that really wants to hurt, really wants to destroy, really wants to kill you. The Bible says that there is also a real spiritual enemy who wants to harm, steal, and destroy you as well. So this similarity is really easy to make. The other similarity is this battle is raging around you all of the time. Back in World War II days, America's army was good guys on this side of the field, bad guys on that side of the field. Everybody knows what side of the field you're on and where the good and the bad guys are. The battlefield today, they're everywhere. They're all around you all of the time. You can never, ever let your guard down the average Christian would immediately understand this and say, yeah, I'm surrounded by temptation. I'm surrounded by evil. It's all around me all the time. And the analogy is you can never let your guard down. The difference between physical battle on the combat in a combat zone and spiritual warfare is the enemy is not always easy to see in spiritual warfare. In fact, sometimes the enemy's best weapon is to be very subtle and you don't even know it until you're right in his grasp. So this is an even more important reason why Christians especially need to keep their guard up because sometimes the enemy is so subtle. His tactics are so, um, hard to recognize that it's not until you're actually you actually started to step in it that you realize oh man i made a mistake
1: october 3rd 1993 the first day of the battle of mogadishu describe for me what was your day like how did it start what was on your mind that day just kind of from literally the time you woke up and then into where we all know it went
0: the big battle in somalia october 3rd and 4th 1993 This day started basically like almost all of the rest of them. Task Force Ranger was in Somalia to go find a bad guy, take him down, and to take down the leadership of his clan. So every day, all day long, we're trying to track down Muhammad Farah Aidid, and this day as well. But it was uh, scheduled to be kind of a less than, uh, a less, um, we weren't, we were going to have a kind of an, an easier day than normal because we had planned for a barbecue that afternoon. Um, and also because it was a, we didn't think there was a whole lot of uh, stuff that was leading us towards another operation. We, we were trying to give guys a break. So I spent part of that day instead of preparing our equipment and, you know, waiting for the ne- the next tip that I did is on this part of the city. I spent part of the day with my guys on the opposite side of the airfield. We were staying in a hangar on the airfield, which is located right on the coast of the Indian Ocean. And on the opposite side of the airfield was the beach. Now, you really couldn't go play in the water because the water was seriously infected, with sh- infested with sharks. But Um, You could go to the beach and you could kind of let your hair down for a few minutes. We were also doing some pretty epic volleyball tournaments right in the little uh, area where we parked our vehicles. And this was kind of unit against unit, but those volleyball tournaments got pretty intense. So there was a volleyball tournament going on. There were some guys at the beach and we were planning to cook a barbecue later on that night. And that's when we got the tip that, hey, two of these really important um, guys from the Idid clan were meeting in the same building at the same time. But basically got up that morning, just another normal day in Somalia, trying to find, kill, or capture some bad guys and trying to keep myself inter- or occupied whenever there wasn't uh, a target to go on.
1: What was specifically your role that day? So your rank, what were, who were you responsible for? What was your job or kind of your MOS at the time and what were you kind of doing?
0: My role in Somalia um, and in Black Hawk Down is I was a staff sergeant assigned to Bravo Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion, and our company was basically doing two things during all of the missions in Somalia, almost every mission. We had about two-thirds of our company on helicopters flying in and providing an assault force for the Uh, operations that we did. And about a third of our company was located on Humvees. And we were kind of the quick, quick reaction force, though the city was so narrow and densely populated that when we flew in by helicopter, you really couldn't land helicopters and get everybody on board and fly them out. So on almost every mission, the helicopters flew guys in, but the Humvees brought everybody out. I was the guy on the Humvees and my squad was located generally on the first two Humvees, which means I navigated all of the vehicles to the target buildings. Whenever we went out into the city, it also means we provided guns while we were at the target building to be able to get everybody on the vehicles and roll everybody out. And we were also the, uh, force that would carry out bad guys. If we were going to take down 10 or 12 or 20 bad guys, they were going to come out on the Humvees with us. And that's what I did on October 3rd and 4th as well.
1: What, what is the one or several biggest takeaways that you feel like you learned from being an army ranger that you feel like you couldn't have learned anywhere else or doing anything else? It taught me how, where my breaking point is.
0: And although everybody needs to learn this, you really can't find your breaking point until you've been taken to your breaking point and past your breaking point. And that's happened to me more than once in the army. So I now know like what my limitations are, what my capabilities are, but also what my limitations are. And I found that most people don't know what their limitations are because they're not willing to personally push themselves. They need somebody else to push them past their breaking point. I've also found in more than 20 years in the army that most people's breaking point is a lot farther, It's a lot, uh, their breaking point is a lot higher than they, than they may even think. And if you'll allow somebody to help you learn that much about yourself, your level of confidence, your level of abilities can go through the roof when you find your real breaking point. Because you also realize, I'm I may be stronger than I gave myself credit for. Or I'm, I'm, I'm able to handle this situation now that I know my breaking point where I, I would have never even tried it not knowing my breaking point. It's kind of like climbing a mountain. And I mean a really hard, really high mountain. Part of climbing a mountain is not just standing on the top and saying, I did it. It's for the rest of your life. You can look back and when you're challenged with other stuff, difficulties in life, you can look back and say, yeah, but I was able to make it to the top of that mountain. And if I could tackle that mountain in the past, maybe I can handle this problem in the future or the the deal that I'm going with today. And there's a great degree of, you know, personal pride that comes along with that, but also some confidence.
1: So a lot of people might say, listening to your story or even the amazing answer you just gave that You know you absolutely rise to the occasion right going through uh you know trying out to be in the 75th regiment that that's serious business but they themselves are trapped in everyday life right there's no bullets flying at them they don't aspire to be in the military but they need to rise to their own personal occasion whether that's being a single mom whether that's finding god whether that's getting out of a bad situation a bad family upbringing like what advice or, or just what's your, your POV or your take on on people that would just look at that and say, you know, that's an extreme for him. Of course, he rose to the occasion, because otherwise he quit. Like, he's, you know, he's done. But for everyday life, how, how can we personally you know, rise to our own occasion or find our breaking point when it's really a not life and death situation? Or maybe that's the mentality you need to have, because it kind of is, if you think about it.
0: Yeah, the people that would ask, hey, Jeff, that's okay for you. I mean, you were able to be able to do that thing in Somalia. I could never do something like that. I'm just trying to pay the bills. I'm just trying to take care of my family. I'm just trying to handle the diagnosis from the doctor that I just got. I really wanna push back on that a little bit and say, I'm not, look, I think you may be selling yourself way too short. I am just a guy. I'm just a guy who was in a pretty extraordinary circumstance when I was in Somalia. And I think others that were in the extraordinary circumstance, if they were in the same circumstances, many people would have done what I did. In other words, I'm not saying I'm an extraordinary guy. I was just in some extraordinary circumstances and i also think a person is a pretty extraordinary person who gets up goes to work every day just does their job to the best of their ability comes home loves their family and tries to be a good man or a good woman that's a pretty extraordinary human being the person that really is a uh, you know doesn't rise to the occasion that's the person that really has some stuff that they need to work on And I also believe everybody has their moment, what our president, Teddy Roosevelt, once called your crowded hour. He referred to his moment in the Battle of San Juan uh, Hill as his crowded hour. His sons who served in the military, he told them, you will probably have your crowded hour, where this is the moment where what you believe and who you are will be put to the test and you want to know that you're going to pass the test so for some people your crowded hour is a spouse of 20 years that's going to give you tell you that they want a divorce for others it's going to be getting a terminal diagnosis or facing bankruptcy or like you just described a family situation where you were abused, your father was abused, your grandfather was abused, and somebody has to break this cycle of abuse. And I believe every human being, I believe this deep inside, every human being has the ability to rise to the occasion, but almost not everybody does. And one of the things that distinguishes the people that do rise to the occasion that from those that don't is faith. Uh a source of strength that is bigger than yourself, that is giving you the courage to step up and to say, this may go really, really bad, but here goes anyway. I'm going to give it a shot. And faith can provide for people the antidote for fear. In fact, in my opinion, courage isn't the opposite of fear. Faith is the opposite of fear.
1: I know this is a super, super broad question, but what were kind of your personal takeaways or learnings from, from that experience. And I know you've written a book about it and that's, we could probably spend the next five hours letting you answer this question, but what are some of the things that top of mind for you that you really took away from that?
0: Some of the biggest lessons that I carried home with me from Somalia, and it wasn't necessarily during the battle, but it was because of the battle that life started to look a little bit different for me. I was a Christian while I was in the army Um, a very committed Christian while I was in Somalia. And although I was a a special operator in the Ranger Regiment, I had this deep faith. During the big battle on October 3rd and 4th, 1993, I was pretty convinced, not not pretty, I was absolutely certain that I was going to die. And most of that entire 18-hour firefight, I was absolutely certain that I was going to die. But at the same time, my faith gave me a supernatural sense of peace. And I mean, literally, I was sure that I was going to die in the next few moments, but had no real fear about it. Only after that firefight was over with, and I didn't really believe that I was going to survive it, but only after the firefight was over with, the next day when I finally made it back to our base, um, my friends who were not Christians were coming up to me and talking to me about my faith. And... Many of them were saying, Jeff, you you have something different. I, I, there's something about you. I could hear it in your voice when I on the radio last night. Or while I was watching you in the city streets, you were able to do something that I couldn't do. And I want to know what's different. And God gave me the opportunity to talk to a lot of my friends about my faith the very moment that I got back into our base after the big firefight was over with. And for me, one of the most life-changing events was not during the firefight, but after the firefight. I really believed before that day, I was going to be a sergeant in the army for the rest of my life. It was the next day that God really started to overwhelmingly show me he was moving me into the ministry. And eventually I became an army chaplain and then pastor to church because of the men that i had a chance to serve with in somalia that were just not ready to die and they they realized that they weren't ready for eternity while we were in this big firefight
1: i think a lot of people would say they're christians or if they are they say absolutely you know i think i'm gonna go to heaven and i and i hate talking in generality so i don't want to set this up but do you feel like before you went into that battle so you talked about you started that day doing volleyball preparing for a barbecue that in that moment you were ready to die and you were willing to to basically say, God, I know you're real. I'm going to put my life on the line for these guys or the mission, knowing that if it goes south, like I'm going to heaven. Do you feel like you already had that level of faith or do you feel like it was because of then you were put in the moment, bullets flying, th- the fear of death, you accepted it, that that's when you went into that stage? And, and, and if so, and then the part B to that is if someone's in door number one of saying, you know, I think I believe in God, but ultimately gun to the head, you know, they're not sure where they're going. How do you think they move from that to, to know where they're going?
0: It's a difficult question to answer. Or how does somebody know conclusively that they're a Christian? The short answer for me is there's no question in my mind before I went to Somalia that I was A Christian, that my destiny was heaven, that my eternity had been taken care of by Jesus Christ. I had known that for years. Maybe one of the reasons why that was so solid for me is because the Ranger Regiment did very dangerous training. And many of us realized I may not make it to the next combat zone. I may get killed on a training mission tomorrow. That's part of the job. And I had to settle years before going to Somalia. The idea of doing deadly, really deadly training. So while I was in Somalia, I didn't have this moment where my faith became solid. It was rock solid all along. So solid, in fact, that I think the average person who hears my story automatically assumes, well, he just got shot at. He got scared to death and he got, air quotes, religion while he was getting shot at. For me, it's the exact opposite. It's no... I was getting shot at and absolutely at peace with the idea of dying. My buddies, however, and some of them were probably Christian in name only, started to get shot at and realized, "Uh uh-oh, I may not make it out of this thing alive, and got scared to death. And that may be the thing that caused them to come up and talk to me and say, I really need to find out from you right now, what does it really mean to be a Christian? But the question at its essence is asking what is the difference between somebody who's genuinely born again and somebody who just claims the moniker of Christian? And this is where we've con- churches and sometimes pastors have confused things in our country. We've given people the idea that, Hey, if you just walk down an aisle or if you just pray this simple prayer that everything's okay and you're on your way to heaven, well, maybe it is and maybe it's not. And the only person that really knows that is you deep down inside but there are some indicators that you're genuinely on your way to heaven. And those indicators are your life is now starting to transform in ways that a human being can't transform themselves. Meaning your thought processes are starting to be different. Your hopes and your desires are changing and you couldn't change those yourself. God is supernaturally changing those for you. I believe everybody can know for certain whether or not they're a Christian. But I believe a lot of people are just blindly going through the, I did the thing that the preacher asked me to do a long time ago, so I hope I'm good. And hoping I'm good is not enough to bet eternity on. Man, I tell people, you got to know you're on your way to heaven. And by the way, the book of uh, John tells us that you can know John's letters tell us that you can know for sure that you are on your way to heaven.
1: What do you think separates a good leader from a great leader?
0: One word, love. But I don't mean love for the job necessarily as much as love for the people that you lead. Now, the person that doesn't, I I guess I would take a minute to explain that. That doesn't mean that you're a pushover. In fact, some of the greatest leaders that I know were really tough people to work for that had really high standards, but... They were the kind of people, the military leaders that I worked for, even some church leaders that I've seen, really loved the people that they led. And as a result, they were willing to sacrifice for them. They were willing to say something that nobody else would say to them, to tell them a hard truth. They were willing to challenge them in ways that they've never been challenged before. And for me, the difference between a good leader, and there's plenty of good leaders out there, but a few great leaders, the difference is, is love.
1: How did you learn to separate the good from the bad and move on mentally, emotionally, spiritually from some of the things that you had to go through or fight through in the military? And how can people apply that to their everyday life?
0: The army trained me on how to put the mistakes that I've made or the failures in the past and to move on. And really the army trained me for this at the earliest levels. It reminded me we're all imperfect. We're all going to make mistakes you're probably going to make a mistake or two on the battlefield. You need to prepare yourself today for the, the, the possibility that that may happen. And God forbid your mistake may cost somebody their life. So don't make that mistake if at all possible. But at the same time, the army also trained me, even if you've made a mistake or even if the situation goes south and you didn't have any, it wasn't your fault. Even if that happens, you have to figure out a way to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and get right back after it because the enemy is not going to stop and allow you to uh, you know to feel sorry for yourself. The 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 bullets are still flying and the battle isn't over yet. And that's one of the things that the army taught me how to do. Now, the application for people today is you're an imperfect, I don't even need to know who you are. You're an imperfect person. You're gonna make mistakes. And your mistakes don't have to define you. You really can rise above your mistakes and become a better person. But if you will dwell on those mistakes and kick yourself and make, you know, while you're down, those, you'll never learn from them and grow from them. Real great men and women make plenty of mistakes, and they learn from them, they grow from them, and they get better as a result of
1: it. What is your personal biggest motivation that gets you out of bed every day?
0: The desire to honor King Jesus. So I use this phrase a lot, King Jesus, in my conversations because he is my Lord. I am the subject. I believe he's left me here on planet earth to do his will. And what I want to do is please my King. When I have to make tough decisions, sometimes the way to cut through the pluses and minuses is to just decide which option of these two tough options is going to most please my king. And that's the option I'm going to do. Because more than anything else, man, when I stand before God in heaven, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant.
1: In your opinion, what are some of the biggest challenges facing the church?
0: The church in America today, and really the church all over the world but especially in the West and definitely in America, is struggling with, um, be, with a, a challenge of relevance. So a lot of people are starting to simply say, hey, I don't really need to go to church anymore. It's not for me. It's okay that you go, but it's not okay. Or I just don't need it anymore. And what that language at its essence is saying is, hey, I've looked at what the church has to offer. And it's not really what I'm looking for. And because it's not what I'm looking for, I'm just not that interested anymore. What that tells me is the church hasn't really done a great job lately of explaining what the gospel is and how it really transforms a man or a woman's soul. But at the same time, I think a lot of pastors would start to complain about this and they would sit there crying in their milk about how hard it is today to reach people. I also see this as an opportunity. 50 years ago, maybe, or a hundred years ago, you had cultural Christianity where people got up and they went to church because it was expected of them. But maybe they didn't really believe in what they were hearing. They just went because they were considered, uh, uh, you know, people in town talked bad about them if they didn't go to church. We don't live in those days anymore. If you don't get up and go to church, nobody's going to talk bad about you. Which means where people are going to church, pastors can now start to see, okay, the folks that we're not reaching, they're not showing up anymore just because it's expected of them. We've got to let them know what the gospel says and how it can change their lives. And it's as much of a opportunity as it is a problem, I think, for Christianity in America today. We've got a great opportunity to now engage people right where they are and tell them not what the church has to offer, but what Jesus has to offer them.
1: What was your experience like being a chaplain in the military? What are some of those challenges facing soldiers? What are some of even um, the challenges or, or comments rather that you would make just about, I, I would assume I've never served in the military, uh, but that, you know, you're just one potential chaplain of what I would imagine multiple avenues of faith or, you know, providing for the soldiers. What does that opportunity look like? What are some of those challenges? What, what was your experience like?
0: There's a few things about being an army chaplain that I absolutely loved. One of those is the incredible opportunities to share my faith chaplains, military chaplains in in general, Army chaplains in particular, really, they do what the unit does. They go where the unit goes. They're always around the unit. Now, the Navy and the Air Force chaplains are very often around the people that they minister to, which is very different from the average pastor. But in the Army chaplaincy, it was expected that if you're in a helicopter unit, you're going to be with the helicopter mechanics when they're turning wrenches on helicopters. And you're going to be with the pilots while they're flying helicopters. If you're in a hospital unit, you're going to be in the hospital with the doctors and nurses, not just with the patients. And if you're in an airborne ranger battalion, you're going to be training with those airborne rangers and deploying with those airborne rangers, which for me as a chaplain meant that I am surrounded. Literally every day, all day long with people that don't know Jesus. And I don't even have to walk ten feet to be able to have a spiritual conversation with somebody because every day, all day long, every minute of the waking day, I'm around people that don't know Christ. And I sleep with them and eat with them and are in you know, in the same unit doing the same things all day long, every day with them, which is unprecedented opportunities, even missionaries don't get the opportunities to share their faith like military chaplains can. Don't get me wrong. It comes with a lot of baloney that you have to put up with. But for me, the baloney was worth enduring for the opportunities to share my faith.
1: How how did you know or when did you know that you wanted to go in the military, specifically the army? And then did you know you always wanted to be a ranger or what led you or got you to that point of joining the battalion?
0: I didn't have anybody from my family who served in the military. So I was a senior in high school and not really sure what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I was sitting in a, I was working in a fast food restaurant. No way that I was going to do that for the rest of my life. And kind of on a whim, my buddy in high school had just enlisted in the army. And he just said, hey, you should go talk to an army recruiter. It was kind of that easy. So I went to an army recruiter, I talked to them, asked them a very simple question. And the question was, I still remember it, what is the toughest job in the army? And my recruiter immediately, without hesitation, said, it's the army rangers. So I asked him, what would it take for me to sign up and become an army ranger? And he basically said, hey, I like your enthusiasm. You probably don't have what it takes. Very, very few people do have what it takes. But... He steered, He was really honest with me, steered me in the right direction. I enlisted while I was still in high school. I knew I wanted a challenge, but I didn't know anything about the Army. So I kind of just tried out for the Ranger Regiment and showed up there as a private. was still there 10 years later. I loved it. Um, served in the Ranger Regiment as a sergeant. Uh, served in the Ranger Regiment continuously from private to platoon sergeant um, in 10 years. And then I left. Eventually went to school, became an Army chaplain, came back into the Army and served in both the 82nd Airborne Division and finished my career serving with the Rangers again. And to this day, I just loved being around warriors, but especially being around Army Rangers.
1: In your opinion, what do you think separated the people that tried out for the Rangers that ultimately made it and those that didn't?
0: Well, there's two or three things that distinguish an Army Ranger from the general population of the military One is they're tough, physically and mentally tough. And I mean, you have to be tough just to survive the assessment and selection program. The best of the best try out, and 80% of them are not going to make it. They do expect you to be smart. And by that, I mean genuinely, intellectually smart, but also smart at your job. So if your job is a generator mechanic, you better be the best generator mechanic in the army if you're going to try out for the Ranger Regiment. If your job is a fire support officer, you better be the best in the army or don't even bother to try out because they're going to expect you to be able to catch on quick and to keep up with this train that's moving down the tracks at a million miles an hour. And then lastly, you've got to be physically strong. It, It really is the lifestyle of an army ranger is brutal on the human body. The average guy stays in the ranger regiment for around two years, and many of them will get busted up in those first two years. And at the end of two years, it feels like you've been in the army for 20 years. So it's a, it's a really rough lifestyle, but quite frankly, The 75th, the men and women who serve in the 75th Ranger Regiment can do on the battlefield what few other warriors anywhere on the planet can do. And they are still to this day my heroes.
1: What made you want to donate your uniform to Eagles and Angels? How did you hear about him?
0: I heard about Eagles and Angels through a friend of mine, a common friend. And then I realized that it was a a guy who I really deeply respect who kind of started this company. I have the greatest respect for Tom Flanagan and who he was as a warrior and also the kind of patriot that he is. So when I heard what Tom was doing, of course, I wanted to support it. The second thing that really got me excited about this is I am at my very core, every fiber of my being, a patriot. And whatever we can do today in a very divided country where people are quick to criticize the nation for all of her faults. And she does have many faults, whatever we can do to remind people, it is also a privilege, perhaps one of the greatest privileges that God will give you to be a citizen of the freest country in human history. Um, whatever I can do to try to help, uh, you know, increase the patriotism in our country. I'm, I'm willing to do it. So I'm donating this uniform today just because I believe in Tom, the man, and what he's doing, but also because I want people to love and, and uh, cherish our freedoms as American citizens as much as I do.
1: So Eagles and Angels mission statement per se, or even their purpose, I guess, really is telling the untold stories of those that served honorably and kind of this belief that um, you're, you're obviously a vet. I'm not. So I'm just kind of, I, I assume this to be true, but at least talking to Tom, you know, a lot of people have their uniforms. It's kind of something that they put up in the attic. And that was his whole story for starting, you know, the company of this. This was an important part of me, but it's not, I don't want to say it's not relevant, but it's just kind of something that goes away because it doesn't, you know, apply really to, to everyday life. And so he's focusing on a, you know, kind of telling those untold stories of some amazing people like yourself, who obviously, you know, you've written a book and done great things. And so people may be familiar with who you are, but the ma- good majority isn't, and certainly will be inspired by listening to what we recorded today. And hopefully life's changed through the words that God's given you, and you know, to answer. What? Why do you think it's so hard for soldiers, in particular, and particularly veterans, to translate back into, and I'm saying this with air quotes, real life, or or what's that inside them that kind of pushes everybody away, and keeps that locked up in the attic.
0: One of the th- reasons I'm donating my uniform to Eagles and Angels today is because it also was sitting in an attic. And I don't think my uniform is any more special than any guy or any gal who's ever served our country in combat. I believe every warrior deserves America's respect. We owe not just the warrior, but the warrior's family that is willing to sacrifice our a debt of gratitude. But at the same time, I do want people to understand those men and women who did uh, what they served, did for your country, they did that for hundreds of millions of people that they've never met before and will probably never meet in their lifetime. And again, I'm donating this uniform because of my strong sense of patriotism, but I also want people to understand those brave men and women who have served, they have done something for our country that we owe them a sincere thanks. If you give them nothing else, you owe them to say, I appreciate what you've done for me. It is hard for a lot of combat veterans to translate what they did in war to back into society. So a lot of combat veterans just stuff it down inside and don't talk to anybody but other combat veterans. That's understandable, but it's unfortunate. Because America needs to hear the stories of what these great men and women have done. The reason why most of these combat veterans don't tell those stories is because, quite frankly, it's ugly what they were asked to do. And many veterans want to know, if I were to tell you the ugly truth of what I had to do and what I had to see in combat, would you think I'm a bad person? Because I did it for you. You don't even know me. Um, But would you think I'm a bad person for what I had to do? So a lot of veterans just stuff it down inside, and Eagles and Angels is bringing that story out of a lot of combat veterans. And thank God somebody's saying, "Hey, America, we owe these men and
1: women a debt of gratitude." I want to say a special thank you to all of our United States military, uh, law enforcement, first responder community. Um, you mean the world to me. It's it's really an honor and a privilege to be able to sit down with amazing men like Jeff and you know learn from him hear his story and then be able to you know give him a platform though it's not the you know hundreds of millions of downloads like Joe Rogan but just to give him a platform to tell their story and share their life experience it's truly something really special for me and just means more to me than even I can put into words right now and you know, I'm thankful for Jeff's commitment to his country, but ultimately his commitment to God and, and willingness to, you know, respond to the calling that God put on his life to step out of um, a, a, a primarily a combat role and go into the, the spiritual warfare, which is very much a combat role as well as a pastor of a church. But I'm also thankful for amazing men um, like Tom with Eagles and Angels that have given me this opportunity to meet amazing people like Jeff and continue to help him tell his story with his company. Um, as he continues to tell the untold stories of some truly amazing men and women um, in the United States military. And it's just been truly a privilege to put this episode together. Um, like I said, I hope that this uh, episode was helpful to you. It was encouraging to you. It was challenging to you. It was thought-provoking to you. It wasn't really recorded um, at all from a podcast episode perspective. It wasn't meant to be a podcast episode. It was meant to you know, pull audio from uh, the interview with Jeff to be able to overlay it with some video we were shooting so I apologize for any inconsistencies in the audio levels or uh, maybe didn't quite have the flow that you're used to uh, with our episodes here on the No War Zero Days podcast but nonetheless I know I came from an from a extremely inspired challenge so I hope it did for you as well I hope you're staying safe during this challenging time of COVID-19 and thank you again to the, our men and women in our United States military. Truly hats off to you. Uh, you mean the world to me so thanks again